Welcome to Fetch Talks, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies. Find out more about us on fetch-europe.eu. Hello, this is uh, Feb Stokes, the podcast series of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies from Brussels. My name is Laszlo Ander, I'm the Secretary General of FEBS, and I have the pleasure today to welcome in this program Professor Jeffrey Henderson from the United Kingdom. Uh, we've known each other for a long time, and I think if I need to recall when I heard Professor Henderson first time speaking about China, it's probably more than 30 years ago. Some of um, our listeners might not be aware of his extremely rich uh, CV, which goes through a number of uh, universities. Um, currently, is Professor Emeritus of International Development at the University of Bristol and co-founder and vice chair of the EU-funded China in Europe Research Network. But previously, he held positions among others at the University of Hong Kong, California, Melbourne, Manchester, as well as the Free University of Amsterdam. And his publications include Globalization with Chinese Characteristics from 2013, as well as The Wind from the East, China and the Economic Future of Europe from 2021. And I think these titles already speak volumes, explain quite well what we want to talk about. And why we want to talk about China, I think, is quite straightforward in these days. There are very few discussions about international affairs, especially international economics, where China would not be either explicitly or implicitly a subject of the discussion. But I think uh, we should start from some basic questions, definitions. Um, Professor Henderson, I would like to hear some kind of quick uh, and short definition from you. Uh, who is exactly China? What is, in your view, the nature of the Chinese state? Well, I, Laszlo, you're absolutely right to indicate the significance of China today. I, in my view, other than climate change and uh, and AI, it's amongst the greatest challenges that, that we actually confront, uh, certainly in Europe and globally also. Um, who is China? Well, I, you know, if I were a member of the Chinese Communist Party, I'd actually say it's the party, yeah, because that is, you know, a central element in the party's narrative. That's been a claim that the party has made, uh, you know, certainly since the revolution in 1949. Right? However, it seems to me that we have to resist that claim and that narrative. In other words, we must distinguish between the party and the Chinese people. So the point that I'm making here, obviously, is that China is the Chinese people, right? That's a crucial distinction, it seems to me, for a whole variety of reasons. And let me just indicate uh, a couple of those, right? First of all, unless we distinguish the Chinese people as China, from the party and the Chinese state, we are immediately in a situation of perceiving as China as monolithic, effectively, mm. as a country where all 1.4 billion of them see the world in the same way and sort of speak with essentially the same voice. 
that clearly is is no more true of China than it is of any other country. There are plenty of people in China who profoundly disagree with the party in general, but uh, lots more probably who would separate off the party and support that in various sorts of ways from its current leadership under uh, Xi Jinping and his faction, who basically took over the party in Xi having been elected to the general secretary of the party and president of China in 2012. Yeah. So in other words, China in that sense is no different from the former Soviet mm. Union or the former state socialist societies of Eastern Europe, right? It is no more monolithic than they were. And there is lots of internal opposition within China itself. But that's something which often gets lost mm. when people think about China and in terms of, you know, standard governmental, more widely international relations discourses on China. But it's an issue which I'm becoming increasingly concerned to, to try to insist on, because with the increasing possibility of conflict, you know, with China, and, you know, perhaps most importantly, around the, the question of Taiwan, it's really crucial that, uh, that the broader publics, the policymakers in Europe and elsewhere, really understand and operate according to that distinction. Because if we don't, we're in danger of assuming that it's somehow, it's something to do with the Chinese people and Chinese culture that is the problem here. And mm. once we get in that situation, it's very easy to slip into racism. Mm. Yeah? Mm. That's particularly important. That's clear in, in many uh, national cases, uh, of course. Uh, but it's particularly important from the point of view of China, because China is, after all, the world's first great power since itself, you know, <laughs> 2,000 years ago, right? It's the world's first great power in the modern world to be populated by people who are not white. Mm. So there are always those dangers of racism lurking behind perceptions of China and, you know, China does this, China does that. It does this because it's, you know, Chinese people with some sort of cultural essentialism mm. here, which is a problem, right? So that distinction between the party's narrative, the party is the equivalent of China, and the idea that China is the Chinese people is important to make and important to repeat in ever whatever reasonable contexts mm -hmm. rise. Yeah? I'm clearly going to have a lot to say about the uh, the Chinese Communist Party, and a lot of it will be critical. But before we go any further, let me make one thing very clear. For an awfully long period of time, I had a, a lot of things that were positive to say about the Chinese Communist Party, and still do in some ways. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is that if we think about the Chinese process of economic and social development over the last 40 years, in general, but perhaps in particular, that the party has overseen the lifting of something like 700 million people out of poverty, yeah. then we realize that that has been, amongst other things, an extraordinary contribution to human rights, right? Mm -hmm. But often in, you know, discourses, discussions around China, that gets lost. It's not mentioned, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I think that it's important to make that point right at the beginning. Yes, if I can just interrupt you. In the previous comment, you made a comparison with the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And um, is it a correct observation that, especially now, nobody really refers to the Soviet Union as a civilization? Mm-hmm. But when it comes to China, a lot of people say that in reality, it's not a country, but a civilization. Would you agree with this? And does this discourse have a relevance in your view? Um, yes, it does, actually. China, with the exception of relatively constrained periods during its history, has never really been part of the, what for better or for worse, became the the Western-induced mm-hmm. mainstream in terms of values, in terms mm-hmm. of the whole issue around the questions of human rights and et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, it does represent a great power apart, as it were, with the exception of relatively small periods. In other words, the uh, towards the end of the final imperial dynasty, the Qing, for instance, and um, the forces that produced the Republican Revolution in China in 1911 were obviously influenced by you know, ideas and values emanating from Europe and from the United States. Social Socialism, of course, is, is part and parcel of that. It's coming from Europe, political and value system. But generally speaking, China is, I'm hesitating to use the term civilization here, civilization apart. I, I wouldn't necessarily go down that route. But it is very, very different from the old Soviet Union, of course, uh, which was significantly influenced by the sorts of values that were uh, circulating then in, in Europe, in North America, and indeed elsewhere. China, yes, less so, I think. Mm-hmm. That's one of the issues, actually, Laszlo, that can easily feed in, by the way, to a racial discourse around mm-hmm. China and what China does, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's one of the things that's actually quite dangerous here, I think. Right. Can we shift to economics? Because I think what people try to come to terms with is mm-hmm. what we call the rise of China, especially mm-hmm. from an economic perspective. Yeah. And this um, incredible speed of GDP growth, uh, what can say the last 40 years. There are two sides of uh, this question. First of all, if you could sum up um, what made this possible in the first place. But um, what is also a more topical question about Chinese growth is whether it has peaked or not. Has sure. it has it run its course or sure. it's something which continues? Okay. To answer the first question, what were the dynamics behind China's rise as a, what it is now, the second largest economy in the world after the United States? And that I can respond to with really three points. The absolutely key context which made China's economic rise possible was neoliberal globalization from the uh, the 1970s onwards. And particularly within that, the drive initially by US companies to outsource the significant parts of their production processes, I'm talking about manufacturing companies here largely, to, to the developing world. Uh, that I don't I don't want to go particularly into the history, but that began in the in the 1950s with regard to Japan. It was uh, picked up subsequently. In other words, the outsourcing of production by American companies to uh, to Taiwan and to South Korea, for instance. 
But with the economic reforms that were introduced into China under the the regime uh, of uh, Deng Xiaoping in the uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s, China became increasingly the major focus for those types of outsourcing of production processes. So that was absolutely crucial from the point of view of uh, cheap labor. That was certainly true and all the rest of it, but also very, you know, rigid um, uh, work regimes, uh, trade unions. Yes, you know, uh, massive trade unionization of the Chinese labor force. But one of the things that, that the official trade unions in China, those affiliated with the All Federation of uh, Trade Unions, have rarely done is they've rarely mobilized around questions of of uh, wages and working conditions, for instance, right? Very unlike European trade unions from that point of view. So that was a key issue. And so, you know, there's the, the outsourcing initially of, uh, you know, garments and textile production, subsequently of electronics, uh, you know, automobile manufacture, components, Etc. 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 So by the time you get into the 1990s, uh, China really has become, you know, uh, the cl- the key location for the manufacture a whole slew of products that are, that were in global demand. So neoliberal globalization in general, but in that particular sense of the outsourcing of the production processes. The the second thing um, was, of course, the size of the Chinese market. As it's as uh, as foreign companies um, outsourced their production, that invested within China, they generated employment, that you know, creating income. The market gradually grew, and it became fairly rapidly the case that China was a major market for the uh, the purchase of commodities from North America and from Europe, for instance. And that lure of the size of the Chinese market was one of the key things that uh, resulted in in Western companies increasing their investment in in China to produce those automobiles or whatever it was for the Chinese market. But the third thing which was relevant here, in addition to those two, was the significance of the Chinese government's industrial strategy. This can't be emphasized too much. Because what they did, rather unlike uh, many other countries in the developing world, and certainly totally unlike European companies, for instance, before or the same time or even now, is that they insisted that in order to invest in production facilities in China, if you were, say, you know, Toyota or Honda, for instance, or if you were a semiconductor company, for instance, or if you were a computer company, Hewlett-Packard, or what have you, is you had to agree to transfer your technology to uh, Chinese companies, which were then developing and were beginning to grow, for instance. Uh, so a number of Chinese companies, of course, benef- that are now major global players, benefited from that regime, that industrial strategy regime of picking up from the transfer of Western technologies, Huawei, for instance, being an obvious case in point here. But um, so that was that was crucially important. And it was from there that it spiraled into the, you know, industrial behemoth that uh, that China is today. Has the Chinese growth peaked? 
at this very moment in time, unclear, but quite possibly. One of the problems, of course, is you if you have this export-oriented industrialization strategy, which China initially had, right? Uh, it's only in relatively recent years that its industrialization process has become much more in, oriented to the domestic market as the source of, uh, as the principal source of growth. Is that if you become the workshop of the world, you of course generate vast amounts of revenues. And capital, of course, by its very nature, has to be used, right? It has to be invested in, in ways uh, that themselves are, uh, are lucrative. Otherwise, it becomes a dead weight and the system begins to implode. So one of the consequences of that uh, was a shift in resources. It's not only China. This is true of pretty, pretty much every country going through this type of development process. There's a shift of resources into other areas, of which, of course, real estate was a key one. Mm -hmm. So one of the, uh, you know, anybody that goes to China today is typically amazed by the extraordinary, you know, high-rise buildings that, uh, you know, concrete over the vast majority of Chinese mm -hmm. cities and indeed smaller cities and smaller towns for that, for that matter. And one of the problems with real estate development, of course, is it is, tends to be fundamentally a speculative activity. Yes. In other words, you build on the assumption of the market continuing to grow and expand, when in fact, real estate markets are typically highly unstable. And if they begin to slow down and they begin to contract, you've got a problem as a real estate developer. It means you're stuck with buildings that are not earning, that are not earning rents, right? Mm -hmm. So there are downward pressures on your income. If you've actually borrowed uh, large amounts of money to help you, uh, you know, engage in that real estate construction, as Chinese real estate companies have, it, uh, you're potentially in trouble at some point or another. Mm -hmm. You're difficultly servicing the debts. As a consequence, the banks, for instance, that have lent you that money, uh, have uh, have problems themselves in terms of their own uh, financial stabilities, right? Mm. And what you tend to get from then onwards, of course, is a downward spiral. Yeah, uh, this has now become clear with the the near collapse of uh, a couple of uh, the largest Chinese real estate companies, for instance, that has sent reverberations through the Chinese banking system. The government is clearly attempting to step in to deal with that. Right? Mm. So what you have in uh, in the case of China is is really a classic, an emerging classic overaccumulation crisis, but triggered initially through real estate speculation. So in that sense, there's close similarities between what's happening in China now and what happened in the United States and European countries in 2008, and for similar sorts of reasons. Or in Japan in the 1990s? And Japan in the 1990s also, yeah. But you have differences, right? Mm -hmm. In other words, China is not as nowhere near as globalized financially as obviously mm -hmm. European countries or the United States or Japan, right? Mm -hmm. The currency is not uh, freely exchangeable, for instance, right? And that gives the Chinese government all sorts of uh, levers to deal 
with contagion from real estate speculation and the problems associated with it that Western governments effectively do not. The financial system is, of course, entirely state-owned. But even so, so significant could this developing over-accumulation crisis become is that it could still threaten the Chinese financial system which remains, for a whole varieties of, a variety of reasons, structurally weak. Right? Mm-hmm. So there are considerable dangers there uh, for the uh, the Chinese economy, and if those the emerging crisis deepens, of course, that will have enormous implications, as it does anywhere else, for uh, companies closing down capacity, making people employment unemployed, sorry, I beg your pardon. Uh, and when that happens, of course, that presents serious party problems for the party. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Because people that don't have jobs or declining standards of living often get angry and tend to mobilize, right? And this is the party's greatest worry, that it will be challenged from within by the Chinese working classes, basically. Mm-hmm. But I, so that's that's a possibility. I, that's that's certainly a trajectory that we should should keep an eye on for the uh, for the next few, uh, few certainly months and, and next few years. Yes, I thought we should highlight that um, about halfway through this long period of uh, high growth, China was brought into the World Trade Organization, um, yeah. and obviously that was U.S. policy, right? Without the Americans leading. This it would not have happened, yes. uh, but I'm sure at that point um, the the American policymakers did not think about this uh, emerging what we call systemic rivalry, which started to happen just 20 years later. Uh, so how do you see uh, this uh, so-called systemic rivalry between the U.S. and China? The U.S. government made the same mistake with China as it did with Japan when Japan was an equivalent period of development, 1950s and 1960s. What they thought would happen with Japan is that it would become a a prosperous country. Certainly, it would be continue to be a, a supporter, both politically, certainly, but economically, of the United States. But I think that people in the um, Department of Commerce, for instance, and the Federal Reserve in the United States did not anticipate that Japan would grow business corporations able to challenge American ones. That was not part of the uh, the ball game, or their you know their uh, the supposed ball game. And similar things, of course, have happened with China, and that has impacted significantly on U.S.-China relations, uh, not merely geoeconomic relations, but also geopolitical relations. So, for instance, the United States certainly encouraged the growth of China, and and you're right about it. It encouraged its entry into the uh, the WTO, and for a long period of time, in other words, since the first so-called opening up of China in the early 1970s, through to the early 2000s, as a matter of fact, 2005, 2010, or thereabouts, you know. The United States' relationship with China was a relatively positive one. Uh, they certainly cozied up the the, uh, the Chinese regime and, of course, vice versa. They did so because China had not grown globally significant business corporations. Once they did, and once they began to challenge U.S. corporations mm-hmm. in terms of global markets... In other words, you know, round about 2010, let's say, 
then US government attitudes began to change. One of the first things we get, which is geopolitically significant, is President Obama's so-called tilt to Asia, a concern to try to, to control Chinese expansionism. This was, I would argue, entirely driven by intercapitalist competition between American corporations, global corporations, and their Chinese equivalents. There are other things to say about uh, the developing systemic rivalry, one of which, of course, is that if Donald Trump were to become president again after the, uh, the elections in November 2024, then expect, I think we'd expect a significant turn for the worse in terms of US-China relations, potentially very dangerous. And within all this, and certainly if that were to happen, there, in my view, ought to become a very significant role for Europe. And in, in terms of Europe here, I'm talking about the European Union, obviously, but I'm talking about a number of other European countries that are not members of the European Union, including Britain, actually. That it seems to me that under that, in that context, where rivalry, including geopolitical rivalry between the United States and China, uh, intensifies, right? then some type of international grouping, some type of international agency will become highly important in terms of stepping in between the United States and China. We know that the United States, that the United Nations, I beg your pardon, cannot do that. It's always been unable to act when the rivalry has been between uh, permanent members of the Security Council. It seems to me that there's only one agency that could perform an intervening role, an in a mediating role, if you like, between the United States and China. And it is the European Union and other uh, European countries. Mm -hmm. So uh, my argument would be similar to President Macron's here, is that I think very quickly, as a matter of absolute urgency, Europe needs to be built as a third power, mm -hmm. positioning itself between the United States and China. Mm -hmm. You use the word challenge as a kind of um, logical consequence of uh, the increased economic power of uh, China. I think this has probably two sides at least. One is investment. And because of the enormous Chinese surpluses, there is a huge amount of investment. Maybe we can say flooding the so-called global south. But on the other hand, we also have a kind of technological competition, which um, a lot of Western actors consider as a kind of threat. Uh, so how do you see these two angles, investment and technology? Does Chinese investment represent a different quality in the world? Is Chinese technology a threat to other countries, whether it's North or South? Well, I, if we focus on the developing world, or as it's usually called these days, the global South, there is no question that Chinese investment in the, in the global South from the late 1990s, very early 2000s, has been massively beneficial to develop and development in, in a number of the uh, poorer countries around the world. That investment, of course, has not been altruistic on the part of the Chinese government or, or Chinese companies, um, be they state-owned companies or sometimes privately-owned companies also. It's been investment uh, chasing 
particular types of resources in the in the global south, especially minerals, uh, various types of uh, metals, for instance, various uh, oil, uh, foodstuffs to some extent, also. China, uh, along with a number of other countries, Japan would be a case in point, for instance, have in in recent decades bought up huge tracts of land in uh, in East Africa for for uh, foodstuff production, for instance. So the, uh, the the investment in the global south has really been connected with those sorts of things. So in addition to mining, for instance, lots of investment has gone into infrastructure, ports, railways, highways, et cetera, et cetera. And this has been brought together uh, more recently under the slogan of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's important, uh, you know, again, to emphasize how important, uh, how significant that is investment has been to, to development and partial still, of course, but partial poverty alleviation in parts of the developing world. In the context of Europe, that investment is uh, has been of a similar sort here and there. There certainly has been investment in port facilities, for instance, um, I, the port of Pe- uh, Piraeus uh, alongside Athens and Greece uh, has been uh, largely Chinese-owned for some period of the time. Uh, there are major Chinese investments in uh, Rotterdam, the port in Rotterdam, for instance, There are significant Chinese investments in highway development and railway developments in parts of the uh, Central and uh, and, uh, Eastern Europe. So there have been aspects of similar types of investments by Chinese companies uh, in Europe. But the European economies are very different from those of the developing world. Uh, They are... Um, much more technologically sophisticated, for instance. They are much more diverse. They range across a whole series of product areas that are largely undeveloped or underdeveloped in in the context of the global south. And it's on the technological prowess of European companies that Chinese investment has tended to concentrate. Mm -hmm. Since around... um, 2010, 2012, there has been a growing drive amongst Chinese companies to acquire uh, European companies, particularly those that are at or close to the the global technological edge Mm -hmm. in their respective areas. Uh, Let me give you some examples. Um, So, for instance, the state-owned company uh, ChemChina took majority ownership of the Italian uh, tire manufacturer Pirelli around about 10 years ago, or there about no more recently, probably about 2016-2017. The same company, uh, ChemChina, acquired a majority ownership in the uh, Swiss pharmaceutical giant uh, Syngenta around mm-hmm. the same time. The uh, technically privately owned Chinese company Geely, of course, acquired Volvo, uh, again, around in the around about 2008, 2010, I seem to remember. It uh, may surprise your listeners uh, to know that Chinese companies are now the single largest owners of Mercedes-Benz. Uh, Geely, for instance, the company that owns Volvo, owns 10% of Mercedes-Benz. Another 10% is owned by the state-owned company, Beijing Auto. And this goes on 
and on and on, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting differences between Chinese investment in Europe, foreign, you know, direct investment in Europe, in other words, and earlier waves of direct investment in Europe, for instance, from US companies or Japanese companies, whereas the US and Japanese companies brought their own technology with them and set up their own factories, for instance, right, on what's usually called greenfield sites to produce cars, to produce electronics, to do products, et cetera, mm. et cetera. What overwhelmingly Chinese companies have done, they haven't gone down that route they have taken over or they've heavily bought into uh, high-performing, cutting-edge technology companies in Europe. Another case in point, for instance, would be uh, the acquisition of the Dutch semiconductor producer Nexperia by Chinese interests uh, a few years ago. Nexperia, for instance, is again close to the cutting edge in fabricating the wafers uh, that form the chips that go into everything that's through which we live our lives from phones to cars to whatever it is. Mm -hmm. That example is repeated time and time again. So one of the things that needs to be indicated here is that Chinese companies can access European companies because the investment regime in Europe remains much more liberal than it does in the United States or Japan. Mm -hmm. Basically, the, pre, pre, the three principal global sources of technological innovation in all, basically all of the technologies that are absolutely central to countries either achieving or remaining as advanced industrial countries throughout the 21st century, the innovation comes uh, overwhelmingly from three parts of the world, from the United States, from Europe and from Japan. With regard to the United States and certainly Japan, Chinese companies are basically close to being closed out of acquiring major equity stakes in key US and Japanese technology companies. In the case of Japan, you simply, if a foreign company attempts to acquire more than 1% of the equity of a Japanese company in areas uh, in strategic technologies, that acquisition, 1%, goes over 1%, can be blocked by the, Jap mm -hmm. by the Japanese government. In Europe, in the British case, for instance, it's 25%. In Germany, I think it's similar. So Europe remains open season for Chinese companies in that sense. Yeah? Well, yes, exactly. And I think what you explained justifies what in the European Union language we call the de-risking. Yeah. Uh, this policy was uh, introduced uh, sometime you know, in the autumn last year and um, maybe not uh, sufficiently explained before the general public, but um, the evidence you just presented uh, suggests that it's absolutely timely to bring forward a kind of recalibration of the investment policies and the openness of the European economy. So what would be, in your view, the best way to pursue a de-risking policy? First of all, European governments need much more information about what the companies within their domain actually do and what they produce in order to identify those of them which may be at risk 
from Chinese uh, Chinese ta- takeovers of the company's concern. So there literally needs to be a, some sort of uh, record of this. That certainly doesn't happen in Britain. I, you know, maybe other European countries are better at this, but but perhaps they're not, right? So in other words, you've got to know which companies are potentially targets for chi- uh, for Chinese investment. Which of them are involved in in producing strategic technologies. And I mean strategic here not merely in a military sense, but also in a commercial sense. And once you've got that that record, you can begin to identify which companies are now at at risk. And many of these companies just may be quite small, maybe startups, for instance. The, uh, you know, for instance, the German auto components company KUKA, which was acquired by Chinese interests a, a few years ago, was not in itself, you know, it wasn't a huge company. So it's not merely the larger companies that are potentially at risk here. It's also some of the smaller ones, not least of which, because it's in many of the smaller companies, uh, you know, the startup companies in the growing process where most of the technological innovation actually takes place. So having identified those firms, then you need some sort of strategy for protecting them. And the various ways of going about that. It could be like in the Japanese case, for instance, much more restrictive legislation that allows whatever aid government agency is responsible here to intervene to block takeovers. Or it could be uh, something as simple, for instance, as governments having identified the company's potential at risk of governments taking a golden share in those companies and therefore having uh, a government uh, appointee on the boards of those companies. If you have that, then you don't actually have to wait to find out, you know, whether uh, a company is uh, is potentially in the embrace of a Chinese company. You will know about that very rapidly, right from the beginning, in other words. So that's one of the things that's necessary here. Another thing that's necessary, it seems to me, is you've got to monitor and if necessary, necessary intervene in terms of the research collaborations between European universities and their Chinese equivalents. There clearly is a lot of research collaborations in, in sensitive scientific and technological areas, which academics and European universities engage with, you know, for the usual reasons, because, you know, uh, you know, they believe in, in knowledge as an open process, effectively. But I think with regard to China, those days, not across the board, but in certain terms of some scientific and technological areas, may be over. There are real dangers that are, for instance, I'll give you one example uh, from uh, the the British University um, in London, Imperial College, for instance, has been involved um, in, it's now been disbanded, but in a research collaboration with the Chinese Institute, out of which have come Chinese uh, maritime vessels that are controlled by AI and can be relatively small, heavily armed, can be produced in large quantities and just sent out to do whatever. That's simply one example of unknowingly, I guess, British scientists being involved in a collaboration which is potentially detrimental to, to European and wider military security. 
you know, one of the problems we have, of course, China is the world's principal source of a series of rare metals, which are essential for the production of, you know, the electronics uh, equipment that are essential to our lives. So clearly, alternative sources of those rare metals need to be uh, need to be found and pretty quickly. But on the other hand, it seems to me that European countries uh, need to leave perhaps a lot of room for the greenfield production of commodities of various sorts, in which uh, Chinese co- companies have a significant presence, from you know consumer electronics to whatever it happens to be, for instance. Perhaps for investment in uh, in factories that assemble Chinese automobiles, China as a a commercial challenge, is not a commercial challenge across the board. There are a whole series of areas, it seems to me, where Chinese investment can be welcomed and would be beneficial to European countries, right? Right. Does that mean that, uh, you know, we spoke about rivalry, but at the same time, the rivalry leaves a lot of room for cooperation? Yeah. But also, as you described, also learning. And the yeah. learning must be mutual. So I think it's uh, uh, maybe a euphemism that China has learned a lot from the advanced industrialized countries. Maybe they still want to learn more from Europe, but maybe also Europe can learn something from China. So how do you see these kind of learning opportunities? Well, I, this is one of the areas in which, again, we have to distinguish between the party, Communist Party and the Chinese government on the one hand and the Chinese people on the other. I I think what you're really referring to here is what can the Chinese government and Chinese corporations possibly uh, learn from Europe. Let me respond to, to, to that initially. I think it's clear what they want to learn from Europe, and 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 that is, uh, you know, scientific and technological knowledge. A lot of efforts are oriented precisely towards that. Beyond that, I don't know what they would actually want to learn. I, you know, they're clearly not that interested in in learning, particularly from many of the values with, that we consider to be at the core of, of European civilization. But I, you know, that's for today. The point is, is that uh, we have to anticipate in the future, you know, we have to be optimistic about development mm-hmm. in China. And one of the things I think we have to be optimistic about is developments within the Chinese Communist Party itself. What I think it's unreasonable to expect with regard to China is that some point in the next 10, 20, 30, 50 years, that China is somehow going to morph into a country governed by a state that looks like you know, Germany or even Hungary for that matter, right? Mm. Um, you know, it's it's not on track to some sort of representative liberal or less liberal democratic regime, it seems to me. So the best possibilities for the development which we in Europe uh, would want to see in China are developments within the Chinese Communist Party. You know, the emergence perhaps of some Gorbachev-type figure it's uh, at the moment that looks like serious long shots. It is not uh, out of the question, it seems to me. Uh, and again, I refer back to my comments about internal oppositions within China. I, I, they're there. Uh, they get crushed, of course. 
but they reemerge. Z and the faction around him that currently control the party seem to be unassailable. But I, you know, in the future, uh, that may not be the case. Right? Well, uh, thank you so much. I think this should be an excellent conclusion uh, for this discussion because very often when it comes to you know international rivalries and conflicts, uh, there is an inevitable dystopian ending. And I think we managed to avoid that. We learned a lot about uh, the nature of economic development, competition, but also cooperation. And indeed, uh, you gave us uh, also some you know, positive uh, potential paths which are possible for the future. And I think this is very important to, to work for reinforcing those which are positive trends and not allowing an escalation towards you know, more conflict and, and the downward spiral. And especially end of the year, people and the listeners would appreciate this type of positive end of the discussion. Yeah, well, if I could say one more thing on that, Laszlo. Go ahead. Um, as always in politics and geopolitics, but certainly with regard to China, we absolutely need to operate on the basis of Antonio Gramsci's dictum, which you will know well that we need to act politically in terms of pessimism of the intellect, but optimism of the will. And yes. boy, do we need lots of optimism in the contemporary Indeed. world. Indeed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this additional uh, quote. Indeed, uh, we should bear this in mind. Um, I thank you so much for um, uh, this deep analysis and uh, summarizing uh, basically this 40 years um, economic uh, development and the potential a continuation of that um, and the role of China in the international system and the relations with Europe. And um, uh, let's follow up in the new year. And meet Great again. to talk to you, uh, Laszlo. I, mean, I, I hope that's been uh, pretty useful. And I thank the listeners for their attention and wish them all the best before the holiday season. Thank you.